This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of ACL tears from the sports section on orthobullets.com. There are approximately 400,000 ACL reconstructions per year. The mechanism of an ACL tear is a non-contact pivoting injury. ACL tears are often associated with a meniscal tear. Lateral meniscal tears occur in 54% of acute ACL tears. Chronic ACL-deficient knees are associated with chondral injuries and complex, unrepairable meniscal tears. Relation with arthritis is controversial. With respect to sex-related differences, ACL injury is more common in the female athlete with a 4.5 to 1 ratio due to landing biomechanics and neuromuscular activation patterns like being quadriceps dominant, both of which play the biggest role. In addition, females get ACL injuries at a younger age than males, and females get more ACL injuries on the supporting leg. Males get more ACL injuries on the kicking leg. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. With respect to ACL function, the ACL provides 85% of the stability to prevent anterior translation of the tibia relative to the femur. The ACL acts as a secondary restraint to tibial rotation and varus-slash-valgus rotation. With respect to ACL anatomy, the ACL size is 32 millimeters in length by 7 to 12 millimeters in width. The anteromedial bundle is more isometric and tight throughout knee range of motion, but is tightest in flexion. The anteromedial bundle is primarily responsible for restraining anterior tibial translation, which is basically what the anterior drawer test is examining. The posterolateral bundle has greater length changes and is tightest in extension with slack in mid-flexion. It's primarily responsible for rotational stability, which is what the pivot shift test is examining. With respect to the attachment of the ACL, the femoral attachment is the lateral intercondylar ridge, which demarcates the anterior edge of the ACL. The bifurcate ridge separates the anteromedial and posterolateral bundle attachment. The tibial attachment of the ACL is the anterior tibia between the intercondylar eminences. The ACL blood supply is the middle geniculate artery. The ACL innervation is the posterior articular nerve, which is a branch of the tibial nerve. With respect to ACL composition, 90% is type 1 collagen and 10% is type 3 collagen. As far as ACL strength, it's roughly 2200 newtons with an anterior directed force. With respect to the presentation of ACL tears, patients typically report feeling a pop, pain deep in the knee, and immediate swelling slash hemarthrosis in 70% of patients. Physical exam in these patients may reveal effusion, a quadriceps avoidance gait, which is secondary to not being able to actively extend the knee. Lachman's test is the most sensitive exam test. As far as grading, A equals a firm endpoint and B equals no endpoint. A grade 1 tear corresponds to 3 to 5 millimeters of translation. Grade 2, A slash B, corresponds to 5 to 10 millimeters of translation. Grade 3, A slash B, corresponds to greater than 10 millimeters of translation. PCL tears may give a, quote, false Lachman due to posterior subluxation. A pivot shift test is basically extension to flexion of the knee in which the knee reduces at 20 to 30 degrees of flexion. For a pivot shift test, the patient must be completely relaxed, which is why it's easier to elicit under anesthesia. A pivot shift test mimics the actual giving way event in an ACL tear. A KT-1000 knee arthrometer is an objective instrument that's useful to quantify anterior laxity. It's measured with the knee in slight flexion and externally rotated 10 to 30 degrees. As far as imaging for ACL tears, radiographs are usually normal, 
However, a Sagan fracture, which is an avulsion fracture of the proximal lateral tibia, is pathognomonic for an ACL tear. A Sagan fracture more specifically represents a bony avulsion by the anterolateral ligament, or ALL, and this is associated with an ACL tear 75-100% to 100% of the time. The deep sulcus, or terminalis sign, is a depression on the lateral femoral condyle at the terminal sulcus, which is a junction between the weight-bearing tibial articular surface and the patellar articular surface of the femoral condyle. Findings of a torn ACL on an MRI on the sagittal view may show discontinuity of ACL fibers on T2, non-visualization of the ACL, or an abnormal orientation, specifically too flat compared with the intercondylar roof slash Blumensatz line. This acute angle is common in chronic cases where the ACL scars to the PCL. Other findings include bone bruising in greater than half of acute ACL tears, specifically in the middle one-third of the lateral femoral condyle, aka the sulcus terminalis, and the posterior one-third of the lateral tibial plateau. Remember that subchondral changes on MRI can persist years after the injury. Coronal view on MRI may show discontinuity of fibers that do not reach the femur and or fluid against the lateral wall, otherwise known as a, quote, empty notch sign. Findings of a normal ACL are fibers steeper than the intercondylar roof and continuity of the fibers all the way from the tibia to the femur. Treatment of ACL tears can be operative or non-operative. Non-operative management includes physical therapy and lifestyle modifications, which is indicated for low-demand patients with decreased laxity, and remember that increased meniscal slash cartilage damage is linked to loss of meniscal integrity, the frequency of buckling episodes, and level 1 as well as level 2 activity, which includes things like jumping, cutting, side-to-side sports, and heavy manual labor. Operative management options include an ACL reconstruction, a ligament repair, or a revision ACL reconstruction. ACL reconstruction is indicated for younger, more active patients to reduce the incidence of meniscal or chondral injury, it's also indicated in children for whom you should strongly consider operative management as activity limitation is not realistic. Older active patients, which are defined as age greater than 40, and this is not a contraindication if they are a high-demand athlete. And finally, prior ACL reconstruction failure is another indication. Associated injuries with ACL tears include an MCL injury, and in the setting of an MCL injury, allow the MCL to heal for varus valgus stability, and then perform ACL reconstruction, because remember that varus-slash-valgus instability can jeopardize the graft. Meniscal tears can be associated with ACL tears as well. Perform the meniscal repair at the same time as ACL reconstruction, as there is an increased meniscal healing rate when repaired at the same time as the ACL. Posterolateral corner injury is another associated injury with ACL tears, and in this setting, reconstruct the posterolateral corner at the same time as the ACL or as a first stage of a two-stage reconstruction. As far as outcomes, return to play is largely influenced by psychological, demographic, and functional outcomes. As far as ACL ligament repair, this option traditionally has a high failure rate. The arthroscopic bridge-enhanced ACL repair, or BEAR, B-E-A-R trial, with a bridging scaffold is ongoing. Revision ACL reconstruction is obviously indicated for failure of prior ACL reconstruction. Now, let's discuss some of the surgical techniques in a bit more detail. With respect to femoral tunnel placement, proper placement in the sagittal plane corresponds to a 1-2 to millimeter rim of bone between the tunnel and the posterior cortex of the femur. 
In the coronal plane, the tunnel should be placed on the lateral wall at the 2 o'clock position in the left knee or a 10 o'clock position in the right knee to create a more horizontal graft. Remember, 2 and 10. With respect to the tibial tunnel, proper placement in the sagittal plane is as follows. The center of the tunnel entrance into the joint should be 10 to 11 millimeters in front of the anterior border of the PCL insertion, 6 millimeters anterior to the median eminence, and 9 millimeters posterior to the intermeniscal ligament. In the coronal plane, proper tibial tunnel placement should have a tunnel trajectory of less than 75 degrees from the horizontal. You can obtain this trajectory by moving the tibial starting point halfway between the tibial tubercle and the posterior medial edge of the tibia. With respect to graft placement, graft preconditioning can reduce stress relaxation up to 50%. With respect to graft tensioning, graft tensioning at 20 newtons or 40 newtons had no clinical outcome effects in a level 1 study. However, make sure to fix the graft in 20 to 30 degrees of flexion. A high tibial osteotomy should be done in the setting of limb malalignment in both the coronal and sagittal plane, which must be addressed before or at the same time as ligament reconstruction. With respect to revision ACL reconstruction, use high-strength grafts like a quad tendon, hamstring, or allograft. Use dual fixation, that is suspension plus interference screws. Bone grafting is used for tunnel dilation, decreased bone stock, or for stage procedures. And remember that reharvesting bone patellar tendon bone autograft is contraindicated in revision cases. Postoperative protocols for revision cases are basically conservative rehabilitation. Now let's talk about graft selection, specifically bone patellar bone autograft, quadruple hamstring autograft, allograft, and a quadriceps tendon autograft. The advantages of a bone patellar tendon bone autograft is using a patient's own tissue, it's the most common source of graft, has a faster incorporation, has less immune reaction, and there is no chance of acquiring someone else's infection. The pros of bone patellar tendon bone autografts is that they have the longest history of use and is considered the gold standard. Bone-to-bone -bone healing is a major advantage of this choice, and it has the ability to rigidly fix the joint line with screws, and the maximum load to failure is 2600 newtons, and for context, an intact ACL is 1725 newtons. The major con of bone patellar tendon bone autographs is that it has the highest incidence of anterior knee pain, with approximately 10 to 30% of patients experiencing this symptom. As far as complications of a bone patellar tendon bone autograft, they include patellar fracture, which can happen post-op during rehab, patellar tendon rupture, and re-rupture of the ACL graft, which is associated in patients aged less than 20 years old, and a graft size of less than 8 millimeters. Moving on to quadruple hamstring autograft, this may be taken from the contralateral side in revision situations when allograft is not desirable or available. One of the pros of a quadruple hamstring autograft is it has a smaller incision, less perioperative pain, and less anterior knee pain. One of the cons, however, is that the fixation strength may be less than bone patellar tendon bone autografts. However, the maximum load to failure is approximately 4,000 newtons. Other potential cons are decreased peak flexion strength at three years compared to a bone patellar tendon bone autograft and concern about hamstring weakness, especially in female athletes, leading to an increased risk of re-rupture. As far as complications of a quadruple hamstring autograft, one to keep in mind is the windshield wiper effect, which is basically suspensory fixation away from the joint line causes tunnel abrasion and expansion with flexion slash extension of the knee. Another potential complication of a quadruple hamstring autograft is residual hamstring weakness. 
Moving on to an allograft, as far as pros and cons, it can be useful in revisions, however has longer incorporation times. It has risk of disease transmission, where the risk of HIV is less than 1 in 1 million, and hepatitis is even greater. And there's also an increased risk of re-rupture in young athletes. And the odds of graft re-rupture are 4.3 times higher in allograft for athletes aged 10 to 19 years old. With respect to allograft processing, supercritical CO2 decreases the structural and mechanical properties of the graft. As far as radiation, greater than 3 MRADs is required to kill HIV. This, however, decreases the structural and mechanical properties as well. 2 to 2.8 MRADs decreases stiffness by 30%, and 1 to 1.2 MRADs decreases stiffness by 20%. As far as deep freezing, this destroys cells but does not affect the strength of the graft, and similarly, 4% chlorhexidine gluconate destroys cells but does not affect the strength of the graft. Finally, a quadriceps tendon autograft is taken with a patella bone plug but is much less common. With respect to pediatric considerations, the physis is obviously the major consideration, specifically patients less than 14 years old with an open physis, and remember that the onset of menarche is the best determinant of skeletal maturity in females. Treatment of an ACL tear in the pediatric population, like in adults, can be operative or non-operative. Non-operative management is indicated for compliant, low-demand patients with no additional intraarticular pathologies or for a partial ACL tear. And actually, 60% of adolescents have partial tears with near-normal Lachman and pivot shift tests. Surgery is indicated for complete ACL tears. As far as techniques in the pediatric population, there are intraarticular techniques, combined intra- and extra-articular techniques, and adult-type reconstruction. Intra-articular techniques include physis sparing or all intra-epiphyseal, transphyseal for males less than or equal to 13 to 16 years of age, or females less than or equal to 12 to 14 years of age. Partial transphyseal is another option in which you will leave either the distal femoral or proximal tibial physis undisturbed. Remember that there is no significant difference in growth disturbances between these techniques. A combined intra- and extra-articular technique can be used for males less than or equal to 12 years old or females less than or equal to 11 years old. This technique involves an autogenous iliotibial band harvested free proximally and left attached distally to Gertie's tubercle. Then this is looped through the knee in an over-the-top position and passed through the notch and under the intermeniscal ligament anteriorly. This is then sutured to the lateral femoral condyle and proximal tibia. Finally, an adult-type reconstruction can be used for males greater than or equal to 16 years old and females greater than or equal to 14 years old. As far as ACL graft selection in pediatric patients, transphyseal soft tissue grafts rarely lead to growth disturbances. With respect to instrumentation, factors found to increase physeal injury include large tunnel diameter that is greater than 12 millimeters, and this is the most important consideration. 8mm tunnels corresponds to less than 3% physeal cross-sectional area violation, and a 12mm tunnel corresponds to a greater than 7-9% of physeal cross-sectional area being violated. Other factors found to increase physeal injury include oblique tunnel position, interference screw fixation, high-speed tunnel reaming, lateral extra-articular tenodesis, dissection close to the perichondrial ring of LaCroix, and suturing near the tibial tubercle. As far as complications to be aware of in the pediatric population, physeal disruption without growth disturbance occurs in about 10% of patients. Moving on to rehabilitation after ACL reconstruction, 
Early postoperative protocols involve immediate aggressive cryotherapy with ice and immediate weight-bearing has been shown to reduce patellofemoral pain. Emphasize full passive extension, especially if associated with MCL injury or patella dislocation. As far as early rehabilitation, focus rehab on exercises that do not place excess strain on the graft. Appropriate rehab exercises include eccentric strengthening at three weeks, which has been shown to result in increased quadriceps volume and strength, isometric hamstring contractions at any angle, isometric quadriceps or simultaneous quadriceps and hamstrings contraction, active knee motion between 35 degrees and 90 degrees of flexion, and emphasize closed chain or exercises that have the foot planted. Make sure to avoid isokinetic quadriceps strengthening at 15 to 30 degrees during early rehabilitation, as well as open chain quadriceps strengthening. With respect to injury prevention in the female athlete, neuromuscular training slash plyometrics in the form of jump training has been shown to help, specifically landing from jumping in less valgus and more knee flexion. And increasing hamstring strength to decrease the quadriceps dominance ratio has also been shown to help prevent injury. Skier training, as far as teaching skiers how to fall, can be helpful as well. ACL bracing, on the other hand, has no proven efficacy except for ACL-deficient skiers. Finally, let's finish this review session talking about surgical complications. Failure due to tunnel malposition is the most common cause of ACL failure, as improper tunnel placement causes failure in 70% of cases. Now let's discuss femoral tunnel malposition and tibial tunnel malposition in a bit more detail. Femoral tunnel malposition in the coronal plane is usually from vertical femoral tunnel placement, which is caused by starting the femoral tunnel at the vertical position in the notch, that is 12 o'clock, as opposed to the lateral wall at around the 9 o'clock position. This will cause continued rotational instability, which can be identified on physical exam by a positive pivot shift test. Femoral tunnel malposition in the sagittal plane can be from anterior tunnel placement or posterior misplacement, or what's known as an over-the-top. An anterior tunnel placement leads to a knee that is tight in flexion and loose in extension, which occurs from failure to clear residence ridge. Posterior misplacement, or an over-the-top, leads to a knee that is lax in flexion and tight in extension. Moving on to tibial tunnel malposition in the sagittal plane, this is usually from either anterior or posterior misplacement. Anterior misplacement leads to a knee that is tight in flexion with impingement in extension, and posterior misplacement leads to an ACL that will impinge with the PCL. Other causes of failure include overaggressive rehab, inadequate graft fixation, which can be caused by a graft screw divergence of greater than 30 degrees, or a misdiagnosis. So in combined ACL and posterolateral corner injuries, failure to treat the posterolateral corner will lead to failure of ACL reconstruction. Another complication to keep in mind is infection. Septic arthritis from coagulase negative staph, like staph epidermidis, is the most common, and staph aureus is the second most common. Presentation of these patients is typically pain, swelling, erythema, and increased white blood cell counts at 2 to 14 days post-op. With respect to treatment, perform immediate joint aspiration with gram stain and cultures. Treatment includes immediate arthroscopic irrigation and debridement, and you can often retain the graft with multiple INDs and a minimum of six weeks of antibiotics. Graft retention is most likely to be successful with staph epidermidis infections and less likely to be successful with staph aureus. Loss of motion and arthrofibrosis is another potential complication, and with respect to preoperative prevention, be sure the patient has regained full range of motion before you operate, 
which is otherwise known as prehab or pre-rehabilitation in which the patient will undergo physical therapy prior to surgery. Make sure to wait until swelling from the inflammatory phase has gone down to reduce the incidence of arthrofibrosis before surgery. Operative prevention includes proper tunnel placement, which is critical to have a full range of motion. Post-op prevention includes aggressive cryotherapy with ice. Treatment of loss of motion and arthrofibrosis that is going on for less than 12 weeks is treatment with aggressive physical therapy and serial splinting. Treatment of loss of motion and arthrofibrosis that is going on for greater than 12 weeks should be treated with lysis of adhesions slash manipulation under anesthesia. Infrapatellar contracture syndrome is an uncommon complication following knee surgery or injury which results in knee stiffness. The physical exam will show decreased patellar translation. Patella tendon rupture is uncommon, but you can diagnose this clinically, and you will also see patella alta on the lateral radiograph. Reflex sympathetic dystrophy or complex regional pain syndrome is another potential complication. Patella fracture is another potential complication where most fractures occur between 8 to 12 weeks post-op. Hardware failure is a possible complication. Tunnel osteolysis is another potential complication that is usually just treated with observation. Late arthritis after ACL reconstruction is a complication that is usually related to meniscal integrity. Local nerve irritation, specifically of the saphenous nerve, is another potential complication. And finally, a cyclops lesion is a potential complication, and this refers to fibroproliferative tissue that blocks extension. And in patients with this lesion, a click is usually heard at terminal extension. That's all for this review about ACL tears. Hopefully that was helpful. Look out for questions related to this topic on this weekend's question session, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that review. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow. <laughs>